This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just uh, maybe a good motivate, could be a good motivator for some people to start being active, active as it affects what kind of kind of health uh, precedence it, they, they give to their children. But yeah, um, and I also heard that you have been as, uh, in, the, in the group doing the Australian physical activity guidelines and especially the ones for uh, pregnant women. Could you tell more about that? Yes. Yeah, so these, um, so yeah, so these were the physical activity guidelines for pregnant women in Australia, um, and this this was um, so this was led by my supervisor, who is the who is Professor Wendy Brown, and you know it was a a big big task. Um, yeah, we reviewed like data and we reviewed like it was pretty much an umbrella review when we reviewed guidelines from around the world um you know that there are canadian guidelines guidance um guide guidelines from the u.s from the aco which is the american college of obstetricians and gynecologists other statements like the sports medicine australia statements and so on so what we did is that we just collated all the literature, all data available from guidelines from around the world. And then we also updated it with the newest RCTs or randomized controlled trials that we found, um, just to draw some conclusions and to see what are the actual effects of physical activity on the pregnant women and on the child. Um, and then at the end, this was oh, this was a work that went for over probably 15 months yeah it was it was very um very long time uh but they were finally released on mother's day this year so they are fresh uh brand new they're out there um and then we added some sections or what are the modifications that you have to do for pregnancy as the pregnancy progresses uh because you know you have to do some modifications in terms of the activities that you do uh, for example replacing activities that can have a risk of fall or collision for others such as walking um, like first first trimester is fine if you want to go for a bike ride but then later obviously your center of gravity is going to change so it gets a bit riskier when you you know have a big belly and want to engage into other types of exercise so we added some sections about that also um, as the pregnancy progresses as well uh, for example laying down in supine position so meaning that you're laying down on your back because the weight of your baby can compress um, important uh, blood supplies in the in the abdomen that supply to the heart so women might might feel uh, lightheaded or might faint so there are a lot of recommendations on when to modify uh, what sort of activities uh, pregnant women can do things to avoid like for example scuba diving or anything that can have a change of pressure definitely avoid <laughs> don't do um, but yeah so that was um yeah that was a, a, a very nice opportunity that i had to um, being able to collaborate and being part of that research team to deliver this 
pregnancy guidance for activity. So important guidelines, important work. You said that it took maybe 15 months and I was kind of hearing that it was quite hard work. How how was the process? What would you say now as it's behind now? Yeah, it was an interesting process because, um, you know, when developing guidance, there's a lot of obviously um, people that review what, you, what you're doing. So we had a lot of consultations with different stakeholders. So we, you know, we talked to um, uh, like midwives, general practitioners, doctors, and then gynecologists, and then people from the Department of Health also reviewed the guidelines. So it was a lot of like back and forth with this, um, with this document and then receiving feedback, incorporating the feedback, redoing them again and so on. So I think that's why it takes so long to develop guidelines. Um, and also because the, you know, the literature is continue like continues to change as you go so whatever you did in that year it's probably you know you probably have to um keep it up with the literature and seeing if new papers have come out um so yeah there was there were a lot of um like hurdles going through that and then there's a lot of um you know things related to copyright um and how you you include like things from other authors into the guidelines uh and then also trying to write the guidelines in a language that is understandable for the general population because the guidelines were um targeted to women um were pregnant people in general and then to obviously doctors and then people who work with pregnant women like for example if they are allied health professionals or if they um i don't know if they are personal trainers if they are in any sort of way involved with pregnant women uh these guidelines also have to be targeted for them so it was a bit tricky to try to um to write in a, you know, in a more like lay term language, like not using too many jargon or medical terms that are probably not popular or that people are not going to understand. So I think that was, that was a bit challenging. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was very, very interesting um, to be part of it and being able to collaborate with these uh, guidelines. Yeah, it was great. And I, I think it's quite interesting making the guidelines, like for example, the general physical activity guidelines they are kind of try to make that people get motivated because basically it's a dose response relationship where just you get more benefits more you do so how do we end up giving like for example 150 minutes of mvpa per week or whatever the value is and and i think with the general recommendations we try to kind of motivate people and give attainable threshold recommendation how how was it of course you kind of try to be objective but there's also kind of an idea behind when you make these recommendations and how did you see is there a kind of an idea to motivate people or kind of warn about dangers how is it with when you made these recommendations for pregnant women can you notice some of this kind of assumptions behind yeah, so what we um so what we basically say at the end it's um obviously any physical activity is better than doing none. Uh and you know, we know and it's we have well everyone knows and we have identified that you work with like probably three different groups of women. So there are those who 
have never been active, that they are inactive before pregnancy, and then you know they're scared, they don't know how to start, they don't know what to do. Then you have the group of women who were uh, previously active before pregnancy and probably decreased the levels um, just when they found out they were pregnant. And then you also have that group who are the athletes or women who are uh, high achievers or that love to do high levels of physical activity and also... Um, you know, sometimes they don't know how to proceed or they don't know if they should be reducing their, um, their physical activity and so on. So it was good that we were able to, um, to give some recommendations for those um, like three different groups. So we said, you know, if you start, um, if you start with an inactive uh, person or like inactive women, how would you proceed to this? And then we also developed a screening tool coming along with the guidelines. So this screening tool was more um, directed to health professionals or, like I said before, people who work with uh, pregnant women, uh, personal trainers, uh, physios, anyone who can prescribe exercise or physical activity to pregnant women. And then we had um, very like specific uh, contraindications to physical activity and exercise during pregnancy, which are very important. So we just don't want, you know, we we just don't want women to go and, you know, physical activity is good. Oh, I'm gonna do as much as I can. It's like no, you have to start slow and start progressing into the recommended amount. And then if you are sedentary, we said doing any physical activity is better than doing none. So even if you are, you know, absolutely not doing anything, start slowly and progress towards meeting the guidelines. So do try to do at least 150 minutes per week. And then if you are active and not meeting the guidelines, we said. Um, you know, be active on most, preferably all the days of the week, and then try to accumulate at least 150. And we also wanted to emphasize the need for muscle strengthening activities, which is um, sometimes, you know, left behind uh, or because pregnant women are too scared or don't know what to do it, how to do it. Um, and then if you are exceeding the guidelines, so in that case that we have, you know, athletes or women who were already doing more than 300 minutes per week, um, we just say the upper intensity limit for exercising during pregnancy, it's not known. Like there's no evidence anywhere. Um, like no one has tested is how, how much is bad for or detrimental for the uh, baby. Um, so we just said we just want you to have, you know, uninformed, um, decision with a health professional so we just want women to have an open conversation with the health professionals um, and you know as long as they are informed of what are the modifications that they need to do throughout the pregnancy um, it's probably okay if they continue to do um, exercises they were doing before but we always say obviously this has to be in consultation with your physician with your gp or with your um ob gene in this case um, but then obviously there are things that are complete no-no, so things that we don't consider that are safe. Um, and like I said before, things that can have significant changes in pressure, where there is uh, a risk of collision or contact. Um, I don't know, like for example, I would not recommend doing or playing rugby or anything that has a risk of falling. Um, and then, and then, yeah, just more like, um, listen to your body, talk to your health professional, um, 
if you don't do anything, start by doing something. If you're already meeting islands, uh, try to, you know, be as active as you can throughout all the week. And then if you are exceeding islands, we don't know how much is bad. We don't know how much is detrimental. Uh, we just said, just try to make sure that you have a conversation with your health professional. Um, and then obviously modify as pregnancy progresses. Yeah, so actually quite many things need to be looked at quite many different perspectives as there's also risks. So yeah, good good job with the with the recommendation. I can see that it has been a lot of work. And you also mentioned that if you are totally inactive that any activity is better than none. Is there some evidence about links between sedentary behavior and fertility and reproductive health or basically the data set you were looking you didn't probably have any any variables that are linked to sedentary behavior directly yeah so it's good that you ask because um yeah so actually in that data set that i work with which was the australian international of women's health uh longitudinal study of women's health, um, we do have a variable where we ask about sitting time. So I was able to use that and um, explore relationships between sitting time and infertility. But then we found that there were no associations with sitting time in that cohort and fertility problems. So yeah, I guess it depends on how you measure sitting time. So in this case, this was um, obviously self-reported from a questionnaire. And then we ask women, um, you know, how many hours do you sit on a usual weekday and then how many hours you sit on a usual weekend day. And then we just did the calculations time five, times two, and then created, I created a computer score. And then I just categorized it into um, three different categories. And then high sitting time was more than eight hours a week. Uh, but yeah, we, we are observing like the trend of sitting time, like more than eight hours a week continuing to increase. So that means that women are sitting more. Um, so yeah, I'm sure we were going to see more about this in the future and somehow linking it to infertility. But in that study that I conducted us last year, uh, we didn't find any association with sitting time and fertility problems. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. Yeah, so might be that not enough sensitive measure, so could yeah. be really like that. Yeah, yeah. so how how is your, you have done quite many things, you have been doing publications and worked on the recommendations, how is how is it going forward with your, your PhD? Um. Yeah, so, um, yeah, in between that and um, working with long data sets and huge, uh, huge data sets and data, uh, I also did a little feasibility study because I was um, really interested or I really wanted to 
work with, you know, real participants that I could talk to, that I could um, try to motivate and engage into activity. So I did a small feasibility trial that we called Fit for Fertility. And then this included a preconceptional physical activity support program. And the condition to be part of the study was the women had to have a child desire. So they had to, you know, wish to get pregnant in the next two years. Um, so it was advertised Australia wide because, um, well, because of COVID-19 and their restrictions in face-to-face research, um, I had to move it and then, you know, change the whole protocol into, um, just to deliver it online. Um, which was good because the technology allowed me to recruit women from anywhere in Australia. But yeah, so the idea was to do like a group based, um, exercise in a park. But like I say, COVID hit, so I had to move the whole protocol and then I was able to do it through Zoom. So we developed a physical activity uh, booklet that was part of the program. And my sessions consisted on myself uh, talking to the women and trying to do, um, it was a physical activity educational program. So we talk about the benefits, we talk about guidelines, we talk about what are the types of physical activities that they can do and then that should do, how many minutes per week. So it was basically a how to start to get active. Um, and we also collected some measures with a smartwatch. So we were partnered with Amazfit and we used Pi Health. I don't know if you have heard of it. Um, and I was able to collect data from them um, throughout the six weeks that the intervention lasted for. And then I measured physical activity before the intervention with accelerometer. Um, they were worried for seven days. And then I'm about to finish collection for the post-intervention um, accelerometer data. So I think I have around maybe three or four women that are still left. But yeah, hopefully once I get those, um, I will be able to analyze data and see whether the intervention actually made an improvement in their physical activity levels. Um, yeah, they all started with very... Um, low levels, like the average MBPA was 23.4 minutes uh, per day. So they were inactive. That was one of my uh, criterion to be part of the study. I wanted women who were not currently meeting guidelines and who were wanting to get pregnant in the future. And I wanted to work with them and I wanted to motivate them. And I I wanted them to improve their physical activity levels. And I think most of them did, but like I said, I'm yet to analyze data. Um, yeah, so hopefully in the next couple of months, I once it's all analyzed, I can start writing and yeah, share some more results. Yeah, sounds sounds good. So it has been very very interesting discussions this this far. Do you have anything else you would like to add in the in the discussion? Yeah, so with physical activity, and like you said before, my area of research is physical activity and reproductive health. Um, I also explored um, menstrual problems with um, and the relationship with physical activity and BMI. And then I used the same cohort from the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health. And then in this case, we explore physical activity and BMI um, individually and then combined. And then what we found is that... Um, 
both irregular periods and heavy menstrual bleeding were associated with BMI. So not surprisingly, women with a high BMI had higher risk of irregular periods and heavy menstrual bleeding. But then we also saw a protective effect of physical activity in this relationship. So when we, um, so when you add physical activity to this equation, so these are women who have high BMI, women who are in the obese category, and then you add physical activity, we saw that high levels of physical activity, and again, this is more than 1,000 med minutes per week, uh, there was a 90% reduction in the risk of heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, which is very prevalent now, like around, well, the prevalence goes from 15 to 30%, depending on the country that you look into. We found here that the prevalence was around 16% when women were, when women were younger, were 22 to 27. And then this doubled across the time, uh, because my analyses are, have been, you know, longitudinally. So I, was able to see the perspective associations between these variables. Um, we saw that after 15 years, this prevalence increased to almost 34%. So that means that you know women are getting heavier, our BMI is increasing, and that also comes with other menstrual problems, such as, in this case, heavy menstrual bleeding. But the good news is that, again, <laughs> physical activity um, can reduce uh this the odds of this uh of this condition and then you know even if the women has a high bmi or it's already in the obese category adding some physical activity and especially if you do it um, at a high level you're gonna reduce the risk of um in, in this case of heavy menstrual bleeding. We didn't see the same relationship with irregular periods. Um, and I think it's just because the way that it's measured. So we don't have a validated measure of how to report irregular periods. Um, and it could be a bit uh, subjective because, you know, what, like how, how would a woman know what irregular is? Um, so yeah, um, didn't find any associations within those two, but we definitely saw an association those response relationship with BMI and these two menstrual symptoms, so both irregular periods and heavy menstrual bleeding. So you said that the prevalence of uh, heavy menstrual bleeding is quite common and seems to be increasing and that lower BMI and higher physical activity helps in that. So it seems to quite quite a big part of women are, are suffering from this. What kind of problems are associated with heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, so um, one of the main problems is the risk of anemia because, you know, women are, you know, bleeding for quite a long time and then their iron levels go low and then they have, you know, symptoms like faintness, shortness of breath. Uh, It's also uncomfortable um, and there's also a, um, how do I say it? Like, uh, oh, I forgot the word. Give me a second. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's also the, you know, the risk of reverse causality here. So sometimes women that have heavy menstrual bleeding don't exercise because this is a barrier to exercise. Instead of, you know, you have to exercise to reduce the odds of having heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, but yeah, it also comes with... Um, you know, it can also increase the risk of um, 
other conditions, um, like both heavy, uh, irregular periods and heavy menstrual bleeding are associated with uh, some types of cancer, um, like gynecological cancers or risk of fractures or risk of miscarriages as well. And yeah, most of all, it's, it's just uncomfortable for women. Like no one should have to go through this, um, you know, severe period of pain, heavy bleeding, um, you know, not knowing when it's going to stop. Um, but, but yeah, good news is that exercise seems to help. And even if women have a high BMI, like even in women who were obese, we did see a decrease in the odds. So, um, a 19% reduction in the odds of heavy menstrual bleeding when you add more than 1000 med minutes per week. Yeah, so it seems that also in in associate, association with reproductive health, physical activity basically helps helps uh, in almost any any symptom or problem like like we have seen in many other other things related to physical activity. Um, any anything else you would like to add? Yeah, no, I think um, yeah, I think throughout my PhD, I have been lucky because I've been exposed to, like I said, this huge data set. I've been able to, you know, analyze and explore all these variables that were of interest to me. And then I was also able to do my little feasibility study um, and just being able to, you know, talk to these women and see, you know, what what are the things that facilitate activity for them? What are the barriers to exercise? Um, so I think it's been very valuable for me because, um, you know, I have been able to work with these young adult women and see a bit more of how they, um, how they manage their time. And then as, as you might know, in physical activity research, the main barrier, the most cited barrier is always lack of time. So it was nice to see that they actually made time to be in the program and made time to be physically active. And then they, like, once they started to see the benefits and, you know, um, education is key. So once they learned more about, you know, all the benefits and how good it is for you, um, and then they started to see little changes here and there, or, you know, I don't get too tired when I try to run, or now I can do 10 push-ups, or, you know, they saw little changes. Um, and that's what keeps them engaged into activities. And then also definitely having um, personal life feedback from, in this case, it was a watch that they received, and then having someone talking to them, even if it was just through Zoom, um, I think it did make a difference. So we, you know, that the, there's that space where we can work with women um, to try to encourage them to be physically active before they even attempt to get pregnant, and in that way, we can pretty much um, guarantee that. You know, if you are active before, you probably want to continue to, you know, keep being active throughout your pregnancy. And then we know that um, it is linked with all these many benefits of physical activity for the mother and the child. And then you just do the, the, the cycle. So the child will see you being active and will probably take you as example. And then you're going to have, you know, active children and so on. So that's why I think it's so important that we focus um, on this preconceptional 
uh, preconception period and you know young adult women they are getting heavier there's definitely more seeding time you know we have uh, we have mechanized movement we do every you know every time we do less and less of activity just with you know, with our works or with what we do. So I think there is a need um, and there's also an opportunity for us as physical activity researchers to work with these women. Um, and in that in that way, we could prevent all these many reproductive health issues like we were discussing and also ensuring that they are prepared or they are, you know, their bodies are as ready as they could be for a future pregnancy. Yeah, very very good words to wrap up our our discussions, and and before we finish, maybe maybe you have your PhD is getting ready soon. What would be your dream job? What is your future plan? You can advertise yourself a bit. What would you like to do after your PhD? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've I've been thinking about it. Um, I really like academia, like I love doing research and I love the research that I do. Like I love being able to combine, you know, my background in medicine with, um, in this case, physical activity and health. Um, but yeah, I'm also going to do um, a three-month placement in a hospital. So I'm going to, you know, going back to there and seeing how I go. Um, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to divorce from medicine, uh, but I also really enjoy being at university and doing research and have had the chance to do a bit of teaching as a teacher at UQ. Um, and I really like, um, you know, communicating with the students and trying to help them as much as I can. So my ideal job, I think, would be something like teaching and research like I would like to stay in academia but then I would also um, like to be able to keep doing the research that I do um, and I do love the medical part of it like I do love thinking about all the physiological changes and all the you know the physiology behind how exercise is good for you um, but yeah we will see I first need to finish that thesis <laughs> which is going to be finished by October hopefully um, and then, yeah, I will see what, you know, what comes up, <laughs> what opportunities yeah. comes up. Yeah, good good luck with your PhD. And I, I think it's really nice that you still keep up your clinical work. I think we need people like you more that have really know what is clinical work, know the practice, and then are doing research. So we are not doing research in our compartment outside of, of society in a way, but you really know what kind of things help the clinical practice so i think you you're doing great work you're doing really important work so so thanks for for that oh thank you very very much yeah so thank you gabriella for taking the time for this podcast thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for having me it was great to discuss some of my research with you yeah fully my pleasure Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. 
If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.